Hey, this is Ken Finnan at Capital Advantage Tutoring. It's my job to get you past the Series 66. I've been promising this video on every one of my lives on Tuesdays and Thursdays, trying to help you get past the 66. I've been promising to do a big, just stream of consciousness, try to get stuff video. So I'm starting to work on it now. Hopefully we'll get through the whole thing. I'm trying to keep it under an hour because anyone who does a video more than an hour, it's just gonna bore the fuck out of you, right? Okay, so I've done the 63 videos already. I've done the agent, I've done the broker dealer, I've done the IA, the IIR, exempt securities, exempt transactions, go watch those. I'll try to plug some up here. But if you're gonna take the 66, it's a whole new world of shit you have to go through. So if you wanna watch it, watch those videos first and then jump on here and get through the whole thing. If you like what I'm doing, please hit like, subscribe, and share this shit. If not, well, screw you. Also, if you go into the details, you can buy an STC book. You can buy the S the Achievable book. You can. There's a bunch of books down there from Amazon. They got some books that are fun reading and stuff like that for the business. Other than that, let's get going. So what are we gonna talk about today? We are gonna talk about future value, present value, limited liability corporation, sole prop, offer and sale, some of the administrative stuff. All that fun stuff that is just like brain numbing bad. So let's have some fun and let's go. Okay, let's get right into it. So there's some definitions you have to know. What's the administrator? They run the state, okay? They, they run the state. They do handle all the security stuff. They don't do the insurance. They don't do non-securities. They don't do things that are excluded from securities. They run the state and anything that happens in the state. So it's a thing called jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is the ability to act on it. So if they have jurisdiction over your trade or you, then they can act. They can punish you, deny, suspend, revoke, all that stuff, or investigate. You can always investigate if they have jurisdiction. Like if you if, if an administrator of Alabama thinks somebody in Nebraska is doing something wrong, they don't really have jurisdiction unless part of the trade or the resident is of Alabama. So they have to have some sort of standing or jurisdiction to do an investigation. But if they do, they can absolutely do an investigation in another state. So that's administrative. They handle that stuff. Now, as far as jurisdiction goes, again, it's when they can act. So what parts of the trade can go in there? So if there's an offer and a sale. Those are two different things, but they're connected. Both parts have to be in there. So what's an offer? The offer is the attempt. That's me soliciting you, either doing a newspaper ad or if it's if it meets the definition, if it's mailing, okay, if it's calling you, any kind of solicitation to get you to buy the shares is a offer. The sale is when you actually do it. So the sale is when you actually pull the trigger. So there's a couple nuggets with this. So obviously, if I call you up and say, hey, you buy the shares and you do it, that's an offer and a sale. But there's some, there's some caveat to this. So what if I give you shares? What if I give you shares of IBM? I'm just happy. Here's some shares of IBM. That's a gift. That's not an offer and a sale because you didn't pay any money. So it's called what they call it, a gift of a non-assessable security. So a gift of a non-assessable security, boom, is a gift. It's not an offer and a sale. There's no jurisdiction. Can't get in trouble. So offer and sale versus gift. We already know what an offer and a sale is. Offer is the attempt. Sale is the transaction. But a gift is when I give you something. So if I give you shares of a non-assessable security, that means they cannot ask you for more money. So it's just a gift, straight up gift. Even if it goes to zero, you don't actually lose anything because you didn't spend anything. But the other side is if I give you a gift of an accessible security, I try to think of it like if I give you shares of IBM, you're good. If I give you shares of a limited partnership, they could ask you for more money because it's a partnership. 
And if they run out of money, they have to do a capital call and you may have to pony up some to keep your percentage. So technically that becomes an offer and a sale because they can assess you for more money. So if that's one way it goes. Another one is let if you have to buy something else to get it. So let's say I'm a car dealership and I'm selling Ford Escalades and all that stuff. And I go, hey, anyone who comes into my office and buys a Ford Escalade, I'll give them 100 shares of common stock of Ford for free. Not really free because you're not getting the stock unless you pay for it, unless you pay for the car. So that is an offer and a sale. So after I get in trouble, that would have to be a broker dealer or an issuer or something. There'd be a lot of problems that they would have jurisdiction. But let's change it up. Let's say instead of that, I go, look, anyone who takes a free test drive of my Ford Escalade, I'll give them one share of stock. That's an actual gift because you don't have to spend any money. If the customer doesn't have to spend money, it's a gift. If the customer does have to spend money or might have to spend money in the future, it's an offer and a sale. Now, other things that are offered, if I do a newspaper ad in your state, it's an offer in that state. If I call you, if I do a TV or radio station, the one that gets everyone is like the whole two thirds. If you publish a newspaper and more than two thirds of the readership, like the Times, the New York Times is this massive thing. It's read all over the world. So no matter where you are, more than two thirds of the readership are outside the state. So that would not be an offer anywhere. So again, that's what they're talking about, like a national newspaper. If it's outside your state, then um, and more than two thirds are outside the state you're in, it's not an offer in your state. Now let's try another one. I do a radio station. I'm in Jersey. There's a station called 101.5. It's all South Jersey, but some people in Philly and Delaware can hear it, but it's published and it's broadcast in New Jersey and it's only for New Jersey. So if they did a broadcast on 101.5 in New Jersey, and just because people in Pennsylvania or Delaware can hear it, it doesn't matter. It's not an offer to them. It's an only offer in New Jersey. Also, we have to figure out if it happened in my state. So we got the ad stuff down and the, and the radio stuff. But let's say you're making a pitch. You're sitting in New York, New Jersey, wherever you are. But let's stick with New York. You're sitting in New York and you call your client in California. So it originated in New York. It was directed to California, but your guy's on a bender in Vegas just playing it up, and you get him there. So you actually touch three states. It's originated in New York. It was directed to California, and you got him in Vegas, which is Nevada, just in case you weren't sure, and the person says yes there. So that's three states, originated, directed, and accepted. That doesn't mean you have to be registered in all three states. It just means you have to have jurisdiction. So originated directed and accepted from New York, called to California, persons in Nevada, they accept it. If you just call them and they go, nah, I'm okay, then there's no jurisdiction because you have to have an offer and a sale for jurisdiction. So what can the administrator do? They can suspend, deny, revoke. They can bar a registrant from association with the state in their state. They can't bar in other states. Also, they cannot enjoin. What's an injunction? Injunction is when they go to court the administrator can ask the court to file an injunction. An injunction is when you're legally required to stop doing what you're doing. I explain it this way. I started a new perfume company. I call Kardashian with a C. Who's going to have a problem with it? The Kardashians with a K. So they will send me a cease and desist order. I go, ah, that has not, nothing on it. So what they'll do is then they'll go to court and get an injunction, which means if I continue to keep doing it, I could get in trouble and actually go to jail. That's what they can do. So Administrator cannot file an injunction. They can ask the court to do it. 
So what are the, some of the reasons that the administrator can deny your application? If it was incomplete, if you willfully violated, remember that's big, willfully always means fraudulent on purpose and it could be criminal or willfully failed to comply with the provisions. If you were convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor involving securities, ethics or financial in the last 10 years, convicted, not charged. If you violated state or federal securities or commodities laws in the last 10 years, if there's a court order banning you from being business, if you are in already suspended or revoked or denied in another state, those are the main ones. But here's one. You cannot be denied for lack of experience, but you can be denied for lack of knowledge. That's why you're sitting on watching this stupid video to learn how to take the 66. The most common reason to be denied is if you fail to pay your fees. You can't believe how many times it took me to say this. Fail to pay your fees. But that can be easily fixed by just paying your fees, and then they reinstate you back to the beginning of the period. Another thing an administrator can do is a subpoena. A subpoena is just a legal request for documents or for, for to show up and testify. That has a penalty of contempt of court if you ignore it. Last thing they can do kind of thing is consent to service of process. Now, everyone thinks, oh, you read in the book, it says power of attorney. No, it's not a good thing. It's a good thing for the investor, but it's not a good thing for the rep. So if I'm going to sue you, if I sue you as a rep, I have to actually hand you the papers, have somebody do it and say you've been served. It's called process serving. But what if you're in California and I'm in Connecticut or you're in Colorado up in the mountains? What I can do is instead of actually finding you, since you are registered in this state, I can go to the administrator of this state and hand them the paperwork saying you're being sued. And it's the same as if I sued you, gave it to you. Civil versus criminal. So if you see the word unintentional or unethical, that's always civil, never criminal. Okay. So if you see intentional, fraudulent, willful, all those means it could meet the level of criminality. So get this down. Unethical is always civil, is never criminal. Willful, intentional, fraudulent could be criminal. So anything that's fraudulent or willful or intentional meets all the civil stuff plus the criminal stuff. So if you sell something that's like in violation of the act, like um, say it's unregistered or you're unregistered or you shouldn't have sold it or something like that, what you can do and the administrator can ask you to do, ask you, require you to do a, an offer of rescission. It's basically giving back the person their money, give, making them whole, giving them like back their attorney's fees, plus any anything that, you know, a little bit of interest, like maybe a fair five or 6% interest minus any, any dividends or stuff they get that they're not going to do the math on. Just understand an offer of rescission is saying, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you back your money plus a little bit of interest and cover your attorney's fees and stuff like that. And we're good. And you have 30 days as an investor, you have 30 days to say yes or no. If you say no or don't answer, you can't sue me anymore. Because in reality, there's no such thing as punitive or damages in our world. So I'm offering you what you would have gotten if you had taken me to court. So if you say no, well, then I'm, I don't have to worry about it. I can still get in trouble from the administrator, but the investor can't sue me anymore because they offered to make them whole. How long you can come after me? So how long, if I screw you over civilly, how long before, before you can't come after me anymore? It's called the statute of limitations. So it's three years max, no matter what. From the day I screw you over, you have three years to come after me. 
But once you figure it out, the time shortens to two years. So if you figure it, if I screw you over today and tomorrow I screw you, you figure it out, you now have two years. But if you don't figure it out for two years and 11 months, you only have one month because it can never. So you have two years to come after me once you figure it out, but never more than three years after I committed the act. So now talk about the criminal stuff. Okay. So the criminal goes like this. I just remember this way. If you see intentional, willful, fraudulent, stuff like that, it could be criminal. And here's how I do it. I call it the 3510 rule. Always remember the years are less than the money, but it's a 3510 rule. If it's a violation of the USA, which means state rules, it's a three year fine, it's three years in jail and a $5,000 fine. If it's under federal laws that you violated, it's five years and a $10,000 fine. Hmm, 3510. Three years, five grand, five years, 10 grand. Five years, 10 grand is for the federal. Three years, five grand is for USA, which means state. And the statute of limitations for criminal is five. So remember, for civil, it's three years, no more than two years after discovery, and criminal is up to five years. We also have different types of accounts that they'll ask you about. But you should know most of this because you've if you've gotten this far, you're already on this, you pass a seven, hopefully, most likely. So we're gonna go through quickly through the basic types of accounts. Individual, one person their tax identification number. If they want to let somebody else trade it, they have to give power of attorney in writing. Remember that, okay? Then we have custodial, that's UGMA versus UTMA. You should know that. I'm not going to go heavy into that, but you should know what they are. Know that there's one custodian and one minor. Let's talk about the different types of joint accounts. Again, I'm not going too crazy in this. Joint tenants with rights or survivorship. That means it's two or more people and everyone owns the account. The big thing is, one person dies, the rest of the account holders get the rest of the money. Joint tenants in common, it's like divided. So you have somebody with 40%, somebody with 60%. If I have the 40 and I die, my money goes to my estate, my heirs, my beneficiaries. You don't get anything. It doesn't avoid probate. Rights to survivorship does avoid probate because you're specifically saying this money is going to the other partners. Tenants in entirety, it's basically for married people. It's only for married people. So basically it allows a couple spouses to own a property in entirety. So the problem is you can't have one person sell it without the other's permission, but it also helps you with a creditor that if like, say I'm here and if you look at my broker check, if I'm here and I have some tax liens or something like that, and my wife doesn't, they can't put the lien on that property because it has to be on both of us. Okay. Community property. It's just basically another married account where it's considered it's both of us own it. They share it. We own it. If I die, my wife gets the whole thing at the cost base of when I died. So she's not going to owe taxes on it. Okay, transfer on death accounts or payable on death. That's an individual account where you name a beneficiary. That beneficiary does not have any control of the account, obviously, unless you give them power of attorney. But the, for the most part, they don't. It's like if your aunt put your name on her account so when she dies, God rest her soul, then all the money passes on to you once they get the death certificate. So when someone dies, all the money goes into an estate. And what happens is it's either going to be per sterpes, yes, per sterpes, or per capita. Per sterpes means it's by the branch. That's what the word means. So if you have three children and you die, it's going to go to each of the, it's going to be a third, a third, a third. But let's say one of them dies before you do. So you have three children, one dies, but they're married. So the money is going to still go a third, a third, and a third to their family. So they're still going to get stuff. That's the way. So that's what it works. So you have children. One, they all get married. One dies before you do. Her, his or her wife, whatever it is, will still get the third of the property. 
Now, the other one is per capita, which sounds cruel, but there's a reason for it. So per capita is basically by the head. So it's only to living people. So again, three children. One, you, if you die, they each get a third. But if they die before you, then each gets a half and the other one doesn't get anything. Now, it sounds cruel, but I don't think they do that with the cash. But it's more like, say you have a family business that's been in the family for 200 years. Now, if you have three people and one dies and your son dies or your daughter dies, if you let it go back to the third person still, now all of a sudden your family and business is a little diluted and it can keep going that way. So I think that's mostly for if you have property or some sort of business that you don't want to be diluted with outside family members, you do per capita on that. So let's talk about trust now. So a trust is like a separate account. It's almost like a separate person. It really is that it's for the protection of your assets. So you can set it up as a grantor. So the grantor sets it up. And then we have a trustee who manages it for the, for the beneficiaries as a whole. So this is where it is. So these, this is where it is. So we have a trust. It's an account that you set up that's either revocable or irrevocable. Revocable means you put the money in as a grantor and you can always take it out and change the rules. Irrevocable means you can't. You put it in there and it is not yours to touch anymore. But it follows to follow your rules. There's a trustee. So you can actually create one for yourself. You can be the grantor, the trustee, and the beneficiary. So say I had a lot of money. I was afraid people were going to take it. So I can put a bunch of money in the trust, set myself up as the trustee, and then be also the beneficiary. Say it pays my bills or something like that. So I can do that. We always have to follow what they call the UPIA, the Uniform Prudent Investor Act. You always have to do what's right for the trust. You always have to manage the trust, following the rules, and managing it for all the beneficiaries. If there's more than one beneficiary, you have to be, be impartial and, and manage it for all of them. That is absolutely going to be a question. Everyone gets some sort of question on that. So there are different types of beneficiaries. I don't know if they're going to go into this, but I'll do it anyway. So we have an income beneficiary, which is just someone who's entitled to the income that it kicks off, but not the main part called the corpus. The remainder beneficiary is basically if the trust dissolves, they get all the assets. Then a primary basically has first claim to everything and then contingent is if the primary, if the primary is can't do it, say they die. So we have, usually we'll set up a trust with a beneficiary and then a, then a contingent one. So if I set one up for a little Johnny, and then marries the um, beneficiary, the uh, contingent one. Johnny dies. Mary gets the money. Let's go down the list, baby. So we got irrevocable means it can't be touched, it can't be changed, and money can't be taken out unless I get the permission of the beneficiary. Pretty much irrevocable is never coming back. Revocable means I can adjust it, and as a grantor, I can adjust it and change the terms and pull the money out anytime I want. So if you see the word bypass trust, it's basically like if me and my wife set up a bypass trust. So what'll happen is. It'll be for both of us to pay our bills or whatever we want, and it won't pay, give money to the kids until the second one dies. There's some tax benefits to it. Now, there's two, there's two main types on top of their irrevocable, irrevocable. Simple trust, that means all of the income that it generates must be distributed every year. Boom. A complex trust means you can hold it over years, you can set up a trust for your two-year-old and say it doesn't pay till the 30. If it was a simple, they'd have to pay them every year. If it's a complex, you can pay her when she's older and stuff like that. A living trust is also called an inter vivos trust. I set it up while I'm alive, I'm as a grantor, and then when I die, it's included in my estate, but it does avoid some probate. So a testamentary trust is set up after I die. So think of last will and testament, that's what this is, right? 
So the testament is saying, I made rules for when I die, this is where I want the money to go. So they set up a trust called the testamentary trust. And after I die, then it's going to it's going to be created and it's going to list where the money's going to go. Remember, the trustee manages it for that all the beneficiaries, not just one. And they can delegate other things. They can delegate stuff like a lawyer to do the legal stuff. They can hire an investment advisor. They can hire, they can outsource functions. But the, they cannot outsource is the payment to the beneficiaries. That has to be handed by the trustee or under their direction. So now we're on to the section that I get asked about all the time, the different types of corporations. So let's start with the easy. The easiest to set up is a sole prop. Sole proprietorship is just you like incorporating yourself. It's not really a corporation, but you're making yourself a business. Super easy, super quick. It costs nothing to do. You can just basically say, I'm doing it. And then you just file on your personal tax return, all your earnings, and you get to take write-offs. It's free and easy. It is always the easiest. But the problems are there's no continuity of life because once you're gone, it's done. You have no protections, no legal, no legal uh, protections at all. Okay, so we have two types of partnerships. We have general partnerships, which is just a partnership where everyone's a general partner. Everyone gets to uh, be involved, but you don't really, again, have the legal protections. But here's a problem. It doesn't have continuity of life because once one partner dies, the kind of things dissolve and they got to start a new one. Then we have a limited partnership. A limited partnership has to have at least one LP and one GP. Remember this. You should know this from the seven. One LP, one GP. The LP just puts the money in. It's a silent partner. She or he, he or she can't say anything, can't be involved other than voting, but that's not really where this exam goes. And there's legal protection. Like they have limited liability. They can't really be sued. The general partner has to have at least 1%. They actually run the company. And he or she actually has unlimited liability. They can go after them permanently. They can go after them personally. The other side of this is all the gains. Anytime you hear the word partnership or taxed as a partnership, anything where you see taxed as a partnership means that all the gains pass through so the actual corporation doesn't pay taxes, but the partners do. So let's say I have a partnership, say it's my tutoring company and you and me are doing this. I make 10 grand, you get five grand, I get five grand. It passes right through. Now, the losses part, maybe it costs us $1,000 to make that money. So we're each going to get a $500 piece of paper that says it's a write-off, and that get we use that to reduce the taxes that we owe. It's called a write-off. They call it a loss, but it's a write-off or a deduction. Like any of you who have done your taxes, you know, if you give money to charity or um, to, uh, contribute to your IRA, stuff like that, those are deductions. That's what losses are. On the accounting world, losses are deduction, and it's pretty easy to set up. Limited liability company is a partnership. It's a LLC. That's what we call it. That you set up it has limited liability for all the members. They're called members, not really shareholders or owners. They can be involved in running the company that you can have one. You can have as many, as many as you want. Again, the limited liability, very easy to set up. And it's taxed as a partnership where all the um, profits flow through right to the partners. And so do the losses or deductions, which is not a bad thing. Remember, very easy to set up. I'm going to do a, a download on all of them after this. Just a quick quick header. Now let's talk about corporations. There's two types, C-Corp and S-Corp. So let's start with the S-Corp. So we've already done the pass-through. So we have any kind of partnership, 
LLC, and S-Corps are pass-throughs. couple rules on the S-Corp, though. So S-Corp can't have more than 100 shareholders, and they all have to be U.S. residents or individuals. If they're corporations or foreign residents, they cannot have this pass-through. So an S-Corp, not so easy to set up, but you have shareholders, 100 max, all U.S. individual residents. And it passes through gains and losses, just like the other partnerships. If you want to raise a shitload of money, do a C corporation, subchapter C, whatever you want to call it. The difference is it's taxed as a corporation, not, not like a partnership. So the actual corporation, this is the first corporation that actually pays its own taxes. So the C corp, what they call double taxed. And the reason is, is because they make money, they pay taxes. And then if they pay a dividend, you pay taxes again. So it's double tax. So corporation, and they pay the they pay the profits in the form of a dividend, which I might have just said. So a C corporation, most convoluted, hardest to set up, but it has an unlimited number of shareholders. It's the best way to raise a lot of money. Literally, literally every single public company you've ever heard of is a C corp. Let's do the quick rundown. Sole prop, buy yourself, no protections, no pass through, because it's really just you paying taxes. Super easy and cheap to set up. Partnerships. Partnership, there's general and there's a general partnership and a limited partnership. General partners, all general partners, everything passes through, unlimited liability. Limited partnership, one LP, one GP, LP is a silent, limited risk, limited uh, what they can do. The GP part of it has unlimited risk and, can, and runs the company. Still a pass-through. LLC, you can have one member or hundreds of them. All of them can be evolved. It passes through. They don't only have continuity of life because, and they're not super liquid. Going down, S-Corp, maximum 100 shareholders, but all the stuff passes through. So wait, so LLC, partnerships, and S-Corps all pass through. Good, I like that, but S-Corp has a max of 100. C-Corps do not pass through, but all the owners have, shareholders have limited liability. They can't, they can only lose what they put in, but you, this is the best way to raise a lot of money. Now remember, I'm not going into everything on the test. I'm just going into some of the more important things, more things that people are struggling with. So I'm really not going heavy into this stuff. I'm just trying to give you a quick overview and help maybe clear some stuff up. That being said, let's just hit a couple of things. The formulas. You need to know you won't have to do math, hardly any math on this. But know what P-E ratio, know what earnings per share is, know what total return is, know what current yield is, stuff like that. That's going to be sort of important. But now let's talk about the investing a little bit, the fun stuff. The stuff that everyone has a problem with. So there's top down and bottom up, right? So top down means that we're starting up top. We're looking at the economy and then narrowing, narrowing down to pick a stock. Bottom up is we start at the stock and we work our way out to decide what to do. So on top down, the economy means more. Bottom up, the stock means more. We're using fundamental analysis to do that. Modern portfolio theory, MPT. It's gonna. It's all about the relationship between risk and correlation and diversification and returns and stuff like that. So the whole point is, the whole goal here is to diversify. Like if I give you, if I say, oh, I want, I'm rich and I want income, you're going to think munis. But then if you look in my portfolio and you realize I have a shitload of munis already, maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe you need to spread it around a little bit more. So we're going to look at things like expected return, standard deviation, and correlation. We don't need to do the math on this. You just need to know the concepts. Expected return is what you expect to make. But if you want to put it in math things, things, whatever these things mean, math terms is the likelihood of something to happen. So if you shoot for 
you probably only have like a 60% chance of getting that. But if you shoot for like a, a 10% return, you probably have like a 90% chance of hitting that. So that's your expected return. So let's say you shoot for 10% and you have a 90% chance of getting that. 90% of 10 is like 9%, okay? So if you shoot for like a 15% return and there's only a 50% chance of getting that, then you're probably only looking at like an expected return of 7.5%, which is 50%. So they're gonna, expected return is using what you are shooting for plus the likelihood of that. And they put that together and they come up with the expected return. That is not, the math part is not testable, but that concept is. The other one is standard deviation. What's another word for that? Risk, volatility. Everything is measured by standard deviation. That's the risk of the portfolio. God, I can't talk. Going up and down. That's risk. And finally, we have correlation. Correlation is, do they work with each other? So if they're highly correlated, a correlation of one, then they move together. And that's, if you have two stocks that are highly correlated, you really got nothing. So less than one from down to zero means they're not correlated at all. And negative one means they're opposite, which is not good either. Because if you have a negative one correlation, one goes up 10%, the other goes down, you're at zero, you made nothing. You want non-correlated. You want a zero correlation, which means they're not correlated at all. And they're on their own. So basically you're truly diversified. The REITs go that way. The limited partnership goes that way. The stocks go that way. They're all random. They're not not random so much, but they're not connected to each other. So you're truly diversified. So if a market event happens, maybe it'll hurt one, but not the other ones because they're not with each other. So what's Monte Carlo simulation? It's where we take your portfolio and they run a bunch of scenarios at it to see how it will return. And that's how we get the standard deviation on that stock, on that portfolio. But we're trying to run various scenarios to see how it would react to those scenarios, like a market crash, market up, the pound going up, the pound going down, the dollar going up, new president, not president, all that stuff. Maybe we're easing or tightening. All the different scenarios are running at it to get an idea of where it's going to go and how volatile your portfolio is. And we use all these tools to come up with what they call the optimal portfolio. The optimal portfolio is the most amount of return with the least amount of risk. So if we want to, maybe there's a way to increase our return a little bit without actually increasing the risk. That's normally not the case, but that's our goal is to say, oh, I want to take more return but without adding too much risk to it. It's called standard deviation. So that's the optimal portfolio is finding the most amount of return for the least amount of risk. So I want you to think of CAPM, Capital Asset Pricing Model. I have to say it slow because I mess words up all the time. CAPM is about risk and reward, managing the level of risk, with the level level of reward. So we're of a belief that to get a higher return, you need to take higher risk. And that's where stuff comes in where like beta, alpha, stuff like that. Beta is how much the stock moves in relation to the market. So if you have a beta of one, if your portfolio has a beta of one, it'll move with the market exactly. Market goes up 10, it'll go up 10. Market goes down 10, you go down 10. It's a multiplier. So if you have a beta of 1.5, you're going to go one and a half times. If you have a beta of two, you're going to go two and a half times. So the example here is that say you do, you have a beta of 2%, two. God, I'm stubborn. You have a beta of two. If the market goes up 10, you should go up 20. That's your expected return. But what happens if you actually go up 22? You did better than expected. So you added alpha of 2%. So alpha is a new word, is what we're doing better than expected. If we add alpha, we're doing a job and we should be paid more. So 
Beta is how we do compared to the overall market. Alpha is how we do against either a specific group of securities or against our expected return. If we have positive alpha, we did better. If we did worse than expected, we have negative alpha. The next question that comes on our minds is, are we getting enough reward for the risk we're taking? Again, I'm taking all this risk. Am I getting paid for it? Am I getting enough reward for the risk I'm taking? So that's what we come up with called the sharp ratio. I call it sharp E, sharp, whatever, S-H-R-P-E ratio. The sharp ratio is, am I getting enough reward for the risk I'm taking? They're not really going to ask you to do the formula, do the math, but they might ask you what the formula looks like. So it's going to be expected return minus the risk-free rate. So again, expected return minus the risk-free rate, boom, over standard deviation. Ah, there we come back to that. That's the risk. So standard, it's expected return minus the risk-free rate, which is the 90-day T-bill, divided by standard deviation. So we're saying, are we want our reward to be more than our risk? So then it's worth investing in. If our if our sharp ratio is under one and it's too risky, it's probably not worth investing. Efficient market theory or hypothesis is three forms. Weak, semi-strong, and strong. Weak believes that everything's random. All the prices and news are built in and everything's random. You can't use technical trading to predict the pattern. Everything's random. So they believe just buy and hold, fundamental analysis works. You can't get an efficiency. You can't get an inefficiency. Semi-strong believes that all news that is public is built into the price already, and it'll quickly assimilate any new news that comes out right to the price where it should be. So again, they, they don't believe that you can believe beat the market. So the only way to actually beat the market is to commit a felony and use inside information, which brings us to strong. Strong form believes that all news, public and private, meaning inside information, is built into the price, so you can't beat it. All three of them believes that there's an insufficient market, not an inefficient, an efficient market, because I can't speak. An efficient market believes that there are no values to be fine. The price that's reflected is the correct price, so there's no way to beat the market. So they believe buy and hold, they think fundamental, passive management. That's what they believe in. So I just mentioned passive strategy. That's like indexing, buy and hold rebalancing where you're not actively trying to beat the market. You're just buying it and hoping taking the ride. That's a very passive management. That's what efficient market theory think works. Buy and hold, you just buy it and hold it. Indexing, you're matching an index and you may rebalance if the stocks get out of skew. And that's a strategic version. And what is active, you say? Active is trying to actively beat the market. That's like sector rotation. Like, like if you bought stock during the pandemic, like you would have gotten out of the airlines and into the tech stocks. And then now you would get back into the airlines and the travel industry, maybe get out of the tax, who knows, and maybe get into like commodities and stuff because we think the, the economy is going to be booming. Stuff like that. That's active strategy, trying to take advantage of business cycles and inefficiencies in the market. Oh, inefficiencies back to the efficient market theory. So now we can start the one that really confuses everyone. And if I... If you're a CFA or something, you're going to think I'm butchering this, but I'm teaching it the way you need to know for the exam. So time value of money. So always remember, money now is always worth more than money later. That's the theory. Money now is worth more than money later. So we have to talk about future value, present value, all that stuff. So what's future value? Future value is what an investment now will be worth in the future, given a certain return, like compounding and stuff like that. So remember, when they talk about compounding, 
the shorter time period that it compounds, the more money you make. If something compounds once a year versus once every day or every quarter, you're going to make more money compounding every quarter than you will every year because it builds on itself. So again, future value is what an investment now will be worth in the future given a certain return. You don't need to know the formula. If you want to look at it, that's fine. I'm not putting it up here, okay? But the, you do need to know the patterns. Like you need to know to get future value, you need to know present value. You need to know the interest rate and you need to know the time period. Those are the three main features of future value. So again, future value is what an investment now will be worth in the future. Good. So if you have future value, you may want to find out present value, which is saying, how much do I have to invest now to get to that number? Again, using discounted cash flow and all that. So the formula for there, again, I'm not going to show it to you. If you want to look it up and memorize it, happy to. But present value is going to, you. what are you going to need? We're going to need the future value, the rate of interest, and the time period. Sounds really familiar. So it's really the same formula, at this, the same components. I'm not going to say the same formula. The same components with compounding and all that but as future value, but you flip them out. So future value, I need present value, the rate of return, and the number of years. For present value, I need the future value, the rate of return, and the number of years. Internal rate of return is what happens when you know the future value and the present value, and you want to find out the rate of return that you earn. If you can do better than that, then your actually value is going to be higher than your expected future value. So one of the ways to calculate this is called the rule of 72. The rule of 72 is very simple. It's either going to take you, it's going to determine how long or how much you're earning to double your money. So if I put in $5 and it goes to $10 in five years, that means it doubled in five years. I'm going to do 72 divided by five, and that's going to give me what, 14, 14 something. That means I earn 14%. So again, if I got it, if I if I know how much I'm going to double five to ten, say, and I know it's in five years, I'm going to divide seventy-two divided by the number of years to get the return I need. Let's do the other way around. Let's say I have five dollars now, and I'm going to earn eight percent a year. How long will it take to double? I would do seventy-two divided by eight, whatever the hell that's going to be. Eight, eight, nine. No, it's nine. Duh, I'm an idiot. So that's nine. So it would take nine years to double your money. So 72 is always a rule of 72 is always about doubling your money. You take the 72 and divide it either by the number of years to double or the rate of return. Well, if you made it this far through my rambling, please hit like, subscribe, share, and let's get this. Let's share this out. Let's get this to people. Put it in any form you can think of. Just share it on Twitter, whatever you want to do, please. Let's get this out there. Let's get some free stuff out to everyone. There's my pitch. That's pretty good. Um, remember this stuff is just, it's a quick and dirty thing. It is not a replacement for the, for reading the book. It's not a replacement for taking questions. It's just to explain some of the harder topics that are not straightforward. Okay. So a fun one is discounted cash flow. Discounted cash flow is a method of reducing or discounting the future cash flows back to present value. So instead of just doing the end value, it's going to do all the cash flows coming in and discounting them back to present value, taking in the time value money and all that other stuff. So with the DCF, this is how we're going to find out what they call net present value. Net present value is just comparing the, the value of all the future cash flows versus the market price of the bond. If all the future cash flows of the bond are more than the market value, 
that means you're getting a bargain and that's a positive NPV. So if you take the future cash flows of a bond and it works out to be like discounted back to like 880 and you can buy the bond for 850, well, that's a bargain, okay? So that's a bargain. So that's a positive NPV. So you should do it and you'll get a better return. If 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 the same thing happened was a net present value is 850 and you can buy the bond in 880, you're paying too much and that's a negative NPV and you probably shouldn't buy that bond. But what if they're the same? Then it's then you have a, a zero NPV. Dollar-weighted versus time-weighted. So dollar-weighted return is taking into account all of your inflows and outflows. So if you're looking at your return, you would use dollar-weighted return to say, okay, I put money in, take it out, get dividends. I either reinvest them or I don't. So it's looking, it's a way to evaluate your return because it's counting as a factor the money in and out, which is your peccadillos, if you want to talk about it. Time-weighted is better for doing different managers because if you want to compare managers, one manager may have a bunch of skittish investors that buy in and out. They buy at the low or they buy at the high and sell at the low because you can't control that. So you have one manager, A, who looks worse than B because people put their money in and out. So they do time-weighted, which ignores, it's more about holding returns. It ignores the money flows in and out of people buying and selling, and it just comes up with an absolute return. That's much better for comparing managers. So time-weighted is better for comparing managers. Dollar-weighted takes into account the money inflows and outflows, so it would not be good for, for a manager. Annualized return is when you're bringing your return that's either shorter or longer than a year and stretching it or bringing it back to a year so that you can compare it versus other things because apples versus oranges are not so good. So let's say I earned 5% over four months versus 4% over three months. So let's figure out what happens. So if I earn 5% over four months, well, four months happens three times a year. So I would stretch it out to a year. I do three times five. That gives me a 15% return. But how do we compare that to the other one? So let's say, okay, I earned 4% over three months. So 4% over three months, well, three months happens four times in a year. I would do four times four. That would give me 16. So I'd rather return 4% over three months than 5% over four months. That's how you compare annualized return. But let's stretch it out. Let's say you earn 10% over two years. Well, how do we compare? Let's bring that back. 10% over two years. Two years is two times a year. So it two times one year. So we cut it in half. So we actually earn 5% a year. That's your annualized return. You do that so you can compare apples to apples versus apples to oranges. And I'm sorry if I offended all those bananas that I didn't mention. Real rate of return, real rate of return or inflation adjusted is very easy. It's your return minus inflation. It's that easy. So if you have a a yield of 8% and the rate of inflation is 3, 8 minus 3, your real interest rate is actually only 5% because the price of goods have risen 3%. You made 8, so you really only netted out 5. So now we talk about the little math stuff. So if median, mode, range, and mean. So median is the number that's exactly in the middle of all the returns. Exactly half is below and half is above. That's the, a, lot, a lot of times that's a really great way to to figure some out because sometimes the average, if one's really, really high, it's going to skew the average up high when it's not really reflective. Like if you look in some towns, the average house price say is in a 500,000, but there could be a $2 million house pulling it up. So the median, you go, oh, well, the median's actually 300, 
because it means exactly half of the houses above 300 and half are below. That's a better one. Mode, such a weird one, is a number that shows up the most. So median is the middle, exactly half below, half above. Mode is the number that shows up the most in all the data set. The range is basically the lowest to the highest, right? Okay. And the mean is the average that we know that the average is you add up the returns. Say you have four returns, you add them up and you divide that number by four and that gives you the mean or the average. Okay, guys, that's it. I've done a lot. There's other stuff in that can be covered like stop orders and after tax return and stuff. But I wanted to hit all the really big stuff that I know people struggle with. A lot of those other things you should have learned from the seven. And if you didn't, please reach out to me or jump on the live and we can go over it there. Remember, I have a live every Tuesday and Thursday night, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. I'm even doing it when I go to Turks and Caicos because I love you guys and I get lonely. Um, guys, thank you so much for sticking through this whole 40 minutes of hell of listening to me. Guys and girls, wash your hands. Hopefully we can take our masks off in a couple of weeks. That'd be great vaccinated. I'm all happy. Um, please like, subscribe, share. If you see this and you see somebody struggling, please send them the videos. that will help. If you have a platform that you think somebody would be, would help use it. I can't speak. I'm stuttering. Please just send it out there. I'm just trying to get as many people watching this. Um, good night. May the force be with you.